Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. So this is how it feels. The anguish. The emptiness. The sour gut. The calcified heart. The clenched jaw. The deep sigh. And then another one. And another one. I'm referring to everything I felt and am still feeling after watching the Cincinnati Bengals lose in the Super Bowl 23-20 to the Los Angeles Rams. Fourth and one, muttering to myself, this is the game right here. And seeing Joe Burrow look for a receiver, not seeing one. Aaron Donald getting his big mitts on him and knowing after watching him stop Samaje Piran dead in his tracks with one arm, that it was over. Whatever happened in the final seconds, I didn't see it. I was looking at the floor between my feet. I have had an annual Super Bowl party for the last eight years or so, and while this one was a bit smaller than usual, I was surrounded by quite a few people, and I suddenly didn't really want to talk to any of them. I got past that feeling and distracted myself with grading out our prop bet sheets, congratulating the winner, and seeing everyone to the door. And then I ate my feelings with another plate of chicken wings and burnt pork ends. Why am I telling you all this, rather than giving you the episode I already prepared on the NBA and perspective on the Ben Simmons-James Harden trade? Well, one of my listeners asked if I planned to do an on-the-ball episode on the Super Bowl, And without really considering all the possibilities, I said, great idea. Consider it done. Boy, was that not smart. But I'm going to hold to my promise with the hope that it is cathartic. It also might give you, my listeners, greater insight into why I generally cover the sport the way I do. But this is more about me explaining why I feel as if I understand some of you better than I did before. 
Being an out-and-out fan is a relatively new experience for me. There are several reasons. One, there's my profession and how I was introduced to it. I've mentioned this before, but once upon a time, before the lines got blurred separating newspeople and entertainers and partisanship in every walk of life became standard, I don't know of anybody in sports media who admitted to having a favorite team. They might have had one growing up, but I was taught coming in that all that had to be abandoned. This was now a job, a job that demanded clear-eyed observation and strict non-partisanship. And everybody that I know or knew had the same thought. Reporters and columnists sometimes tilted the other direction, being unduly harsh on teams they covered in order to erase any doubt of favoritism. That was reserved for sports radio hosts who went the exact opposite direction. They were the voice of the fan because they were fans. They openly agonized over their favorite teams losing and rejoiced when they won. They didn't care a whit for objectivity. But then everything became muddled. In order to make more money, columnists began doubling as radio hosts. Radio shows were simulcast on TV. Gradually, news people were wearing two hats, reporting news and offering opinions on that news. The opinions evolved into debates. With the advance of technology and the ability of audiences to get a steady stream of up-to-the-minute news, the traditional roles of reporters and columnists changed from telling you what happened to why it happened or what could happen next. To do both required a certain degree of speculation, a word that would not have been uttered, much less indulged, back in the day. Now it's routine, all day, every day, by anyone who has a platform. Even those who try to hold a strict line and cast themselves as newsbreakers, nothing more or less, slip into presenting possibilities and what-ifs, and they are often consumed or labeled as news. It's what happened when Colin Cowherd asked me about Bill Simmons declaring that Kevin Durant to the Knicks was a done deal. I told Colin I was hearing the same thing. I wasn't reporting that it was a done deal. I was simply answering the question. I didn't come on Colin's show with the idea that I was going to break the news that Durant was going to the Knicks. I didn't even know the question was going to come my way. But that's how it got boiled down and presented by other outlets. That I was reporting that Durant to the Knicks was a done deal. Now Fox didn't put it out that way because Fox knew the context of the conversation. We put out a clip that showed the entire conversation between Colin and I. It's also what happened on the James Harden-Ben Simmons prelude just recently, with some reporters insisting a deal was being discussed, while others were just as emphatic that there were no talks of any kind going on. That's about as difficult ground to be certain about as any. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. What constitutes talks between two teams? Various members of front offices are always talking, spitballing with other front offices. It's how such crazy rumors get floated out there attributed to a team or league source. Lower rung execs float ideas to their peers with other teams and then report back to the GM or team president the result of those exchanges. That then gets taken to the capologists who are, whether you know it or not, second in authority to the owners because they are the experts on what owners care about most, the bottom line. Sometimes the exploration ends there. Were there talks? Yeah, technically. Did they ever rise to the point of two teams trying to do something? No. Because I have adapted to the new reality of covering sports and have been granted the opportunity by Fox to flex my knowledge of the NFL as well as the NBA, once upon a time at the start of my career, I covered the NFL for several years, I had the chance to offer my insight into the Bengals this season, my hometown team, a team I've watched since I was a kid. Not in a never-miss-a-game, live-and-die-by-every-win-or-loss kind of way. That would have been way too painful for the Bengals. But enough to have a pretty good feel for their history. Working in national media and living in the Bay Area required me to pay attention to other more meaningful teams and talk about them far more than the Bengals. My second favorite team was the Raiders, going back to the Otis Sistrunk days. They finally lost me with the move to Las Vegas. Their persona, in my mind, has been forever changed by that move. Anyway, my FS1 colleagues make no bones about their allegiances. Haven't for a long time. Skip Bayless is a Cowboys fan. Marcellus Wiley is a Chargers and Bills fan. Acho, uh, Emmanuel Acho is an Eagles fan. Not only did it feel appropriate to acknowledge my personal connection to the Bengals, it felt necessary. Coloring their opinions with their feelings, I believe, is why audiences connect with their shows, which I now have the right or liberty to call our shows. All of which led me to investing in this totally unexpected but nonetheless magical season by the Bengals in a way I never have before. Publicly investing in it. Emotionally investing in it, as it turns out. I found myself starting to refer to the Bengals as we in texts to my friends and having to delete that pronoun and use they. But on some level, I was still thinking we. That's what fans do. That's what I'd seen countless fans of teams that I cover do. And the thought always struck me, stop it. You're not part of the team. And you thinking that way is part of the problem here. It's why you're taking my assessment of your team personally. And now I was doing it. I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow -blow account of what it was like to watch the Super Bowl, but here are the, the highlights. I was surprisingly unfazed by the Rams jumping out to an early 13-3 lead. If there was anything that felt different about this year's Bengals, it's that they were a second-half team. Marvin Lewis... Zach Taylor's predecessor, was not particularly adept at making halftime adjustments. 
The Bengals never sported a whole lot of depth, in part because they didn't spend a whole lot of money, and they never seemed to be particularly well-conditioned. That's a tough combination and doesn't lend itself to comebacks or second-half turnarounds. Now, I'm talking in generalities, but fading down the stretch of games and seasons was something I had become accustomed to. Marvin coached the Bengals for 16 seasons. Enough said. When the Bengals narrowed the lead to 13-10 by halftime, I allowed myself for the first time to start imagining what it would be like for my hometown team to be Super Bowl champions. I realized I had been protecting myself, believing the magic was sure to fade and reality would set in. I hoped the Bengals would beat the Raiders. I didn't expect them to beat the Titans. I sure as hell didn't expect them to beat the Kansas City Chiefs. And playing the Rams in their home stadium with our iffy offensive line and Von Miller and Aaron Donald on the other side, I secretly hoped that Joe Burrow wouldn't get injured so badly it would affect his availability for next season. I thought that was a real possibility. I thought the same watching my son play football this year in high school as a linebacker and tight end. Be smart. I telepathically try to message him from the stands. Live to fight another play. Now, my son proved to be pretty good at being effective and fearless while not being reckless. And Burrow, I feel, has the same ability. He has a tremendous knack for not trying so hard to make a play that he leaves himself vulnerable, either holding onto the ball too long or refusing to go down in a collapsing pocket. See Baker Mayfield for someone who isn't that way. But the chance to win a Super Bowl, I thought, might lead Burrow to trying to do too much. That was my thinking. When the Bengals struck for a TD to take the lead right at the start of the second half, and Matt Stafford followed up with a pick in Rams ter territory, I yelled so loud that it startled everyone at my party. My friend's wife spilled the coconut cupcake she was eating. I was past the point of no return. I saw the Bengals winning and felt the rush of joy that came with it. I was now watching the clock, measuring every play on both sides of the ball for any signs of waning momentum. When Burrow limped off after getting pretzeled trying to extend a play, my stomach sank. My worst fear appeared to have been realized. But then he came back out and kept playing, and I felt relieved. My worst fear had not been realized. We were still going to win this thing. I wasn't pretending anymore. This was a we thing, damn it. I held on to that belief right up until the final play. Even after Stafford and Cooper Cup drove for the go-ahead touchdown and melted the clock down to 85 seconds, I believed. I believed. The cameras caught Burrow on the sideline, nodding as if to say, no worries, I've got this. I believed him. He would find a way to pull it out. After it was over, I went through the stages of grief that I've seen fans go through countless times. First, there was focusing on appreciation for how far they had come, how much they had exceeded expectations. Then came the second guessing on the play calling and decision making on the final drive. Then came the anger at the officials for not calling the false start on the entire Rams offensive line followed by what I believe was a completely bogus holding call on third down. Instead of facing a fourth down, down by four, the Rams had a first down on the two-yard line. 
a flag-free game suddenly became a yellow handkerchief-throwing bonanza. I thought back to another play or two where the Rams clearly held Bengals receivers and it wasn't called. Someone at the party suggested it was payback for the face mask that wasn't called on the Bengals that allowed their second-half opening touchdown, and I didn't want to hear it. One blown call doesn't justify another. And that one was at the start of the second half, not in the final minutes at the goal line. And it was one call, not three. I had no use for rational thinking, damn it. We were too close. And there it was. We. We were too close. We had it. And then we didn't. I felt as dejected as I did a few months ago when my son's high school team lost on a last-second two-point conversion. But that eventually led to a turnaround that resulted in a state championship. There was no tomorrow for the Bengals. No comeback. No storybook ending. Just the residue of what could have been. Of having been so close. The memory of losing to the 49ers on a last-minute touchdown by John Taylor in the Super Bowl watching it in my college fraternity house sits right next to watching Joe Burrow and Aaron Donald's grasp, heaving a desperation throw, the ball falling to the ground, followed by Donald rejoicing and pointing to his ring finger. So now it's back to covering the NBA where I don't have a dog in the fight. I have my beliefs about who will win and why, and I have my professional pride on the line in seeing those beliefs become reality. But that's different. What I can say is that for the fans who disagree with me, who may experience what I just experienced if I'm proved right about my NBA prognostications, I will have far more empathy. I will have a better understanding of why they grouse about the refs or the coaching decisions or the missed opportunities by their team or by me and my logic. I know now what it's like to be a fan, how that we mindset happens, and I hope to be more conciliatory as a result. I get it. Got it? Good. All right. That does it for this episode of on the ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And in the next episode, we will be back to the NBA and I'll break down the James Harden, Ben Simmons trade and my thoughts on it. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.